This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed News Magazine. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, one resident story about the mass shooting in Vaughan, how to avoid the family fight, and a spin around the roller rink. But we begin with preparing students for jobs of the future. Ah, the changing face of education and employment here in Ontario with two big announcements March the 8th and 10th, setting the stage for high school students to be ready for and inspired by the jobs of tomorrow through early exposure to skilled trades and technical education. Let's begin with Ontario's Minister of Labour, Immigration, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton. Welcome to the feed and thanks for joining us. Well, really great to be back with you today. So on March the 8th, you pitched a really forward-thinking idea. Students in grade 11 will be allowed to transition to full-time apprenticeship programs while still earning a high school diploma. Where did that idea come from? And some might say, what took you so long? (laughs) Well, look, we've been uh, working now for the last uh, couple of years under the leadership of Premier Ford to get more young people uh, into the skilled trades. I've been critical of governments in the past of really all different political stripes. They've told every young person that the only way to be successful in life uh, is by going to university, but that's simply not the truth. Uh, Careers in the skilled trades often pay six figures with defined pensions and benefits, uh, and you can start your own business. So I was joined by the Premier, uh, Minister Lecce, to announce that we're going to begin uh, building a pathway for grade 11 students in grade 12 to start an apprenticeship full-time. And let's talk about that. Why starting in grade 11? Well, I I remember when I was Minister of Infrastructure in the first year of Premier Ford's government, I uh, had the opportunity to go to Germany and to see uh, their skilled trade system, their apprenticeship system. They're obviously uh, world-renowned, and uh, people there start apprenticeships at a, a much younger age. In Ontario today, the average age of an apprentice is 29, In Germany and in the UK, uh, the large percentage of people are done their apprenticeship program uh, by the age of 20. So we need to, you know, move to really change the system to provide these opportunities to more young people. Minister McNaughton, it's my understanding over the many years when I was even in school and beyond that people who were in skilled trades... The, the sector was kind of looked down on and kind of poo-pooed by, by society. How, is it different now? We are making uh, a huge uh, impact, I believe, in reversing the fortunes of uh, labor shortages in the skilled trades. The biggest challenge, and, and you hit the nail on the head, um, there's been a stigma around the trades. Uh, parents and educators and young people didn't encourage uh, others to go uh, into the trades and pursue Uh, a career uh, as a tradesperson. But as I always say, uh, I meet people that last year, you know, made more than $200,000 with a a defined pension uh, and benefits working in the trades. So these really are uh, amazing opportunities, opportunities people can build a family around, start their own business. And as the Premier always says, when you have a career in the skilled trades, you have a career for life. Men make up more than 70% of workers in trades-related jobs. That's, that is a statistic that is out there floating around. Here's a quote from Charmaine Williams, the Associate Minister of Women's Social and Economic Opportunity. Quote, for Ontario to succeed, we need more women and girls to pursue fulfilling careers in the skilled trades. She's absolutely right. Um, and as I said, we are making progress. So 
year over year, there's been an increase in women female apprenticeship registrations of 28%. So there are thousands of more apprentices out there that are women uh, in the trades than there were uh, one year ago. And overall, that number uh, for men and women are up 23%. So we really are making a huge headway. I mean, uh, our government is really uh, sparing no expense to to rebuild the skilled trade system to promote uh, the careers that are available to young people and also to change the, the mindset of people to end the stigma that's been associated with the trades for far too long. You know, just from a societal perspective, a lot of people watch HGTV, for instance, Home and Garden Television, which is all about construction and about design and about everything to do with skilled trades and very, very popular, very popular. Does that have a bearing on, on in, in changing the stigma or removing the stigma attached to skilled trades? I, I think so. I mean, absolutely. I, I just know the enthusiasm that I see and feel on the ground when I'm talking to parents and young people now. I mean, people are talking about the skilled trades and about the opportunities. Uh, this week, uh, for example, I joined uh, a number of uh, people that are trying the skilled trades um, through a program called Tomorrow's Trades, which is funded through the province in partnership with uh, building trade unions, um, where we recruit uh, people of diverse backgrounds to try the different construction trades. And uh, they were telling me about how they were watching like Mike Holmes on TV and, (laughs) and some of these other shows. And I think they have been inspired Along with your announcement about skilled trades and and apprenticeship programs, uh, the education minister made an announcement that uh, there will be the implementation of a new high school graduation requirement. All students entering grade 9 in 2024 must earn a technological education credit. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, Minister Lecce made this uh, important announcement where uh, for for young people to graduate high school, they have to take uh, a tech a class in, in grade 9 or 10, so it's a new requirement. Again, it's about opening uh, people's eyes to the uh, great careers available in the skilled trades and, and tech. And, um, you know, again, it's just one other initiative that the government's taken to promote these careers. That also includes good jobs in STEM, and, and that's something that a lot of people are talking about these days, the importance of STEM and the job opportunities within Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting with the Volkswagen announcement, one of the things um, I'm told that they were really impressed with is the amount of uh, STEM-educated young people that we have here uh, in Ontario. So, again, it's a key economic driver. These are good jobs, most importantly, for young people and and women in particular. Um, One of the other things that I did a couple of years ago, and the government did, we are sending recruiters uh, into every high school across the province in grade nine to talk about the pathways into the different skilled trades through our OEAP recruiters, Ontario Youth Apprenticeship Program recruiters. And really the intention is to compete head on with, you know, university recruiters that are going in just to, again, level the playing field and ensure that young people are really following their passions. If this had been available to you when you were going through high school, and we also think about your daughter, whom we get to know a little bit on Twitter and so on, you've made it very clear that you are a loving father and a family man. Will you encourage your daughter to look at all options? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, one of my 
um, you know, one of my, I think, biggest accomplishments as a father and something that meant a lot to me was uh, a few years ago, actually, during the pandemic, we built uh, a tree house. <laughs> and she, um, you know, she helped carry the lumber. She put safety um, uh, glasses on and a hard hat on and had the orange T-shirt. So, uh, again, she got to experience, you know, what it was like to be in the trades. We also worked with my neighbor on that project who has been in the skilled trades for about 30 or 40 years. And, um, you know, we got to work with our hands. So I think that's the goal is to uh, provide more opportunities, give people a hands-on, you know, practical skills uh, so they can pick the career path that they want to go down. And what's the timing on this? Last question, I promise, in terms of when we will actually see this implemented. Well, specifically around the grade 11 uh, and grade 12 pathways into the trades, um, we are going to uh, consult, but the goal is to move forward as quickly as possible. Um, Again, there's 144 uh, different trades, um, but we would like to be able to launch this as quickly as possible with a number of those trades. Uh, We just need um, really a a couple of months or so to get out and and get some feedback on how this is actually going to work on the ground. Hmm. So lots of time before your daughter gets into grade 11 to to see this all fleshed out and running and and, uh, working. Well, look, I I think the intent is, um, you know, by September to have uh, a number of these trades in place where kids could uh, start an apprenticeship. But uh, a year from September, you know, we'll continue to build on, on the success. So, yeah, lots of time still for, for my daughter, who's just turning 10. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is going to be great for a generation of, of young people. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Ontario's Minister of Labour, Immigration, Training and Skills Development, Monty McNaughton, and a pretty good dad as well. <laughs> well, thanks, Anne. Great to join you, and thanks for everything that you do to promote these great careers. So we've just heard from the Ontario Labour Minister. Let's now discuss with leaders in the skilled trade sector exactly how this education concept is going to work and the anticipated outcome. Joining us on the feed now, Victoria Mancinelli, Chief Communications Officer for the Labourers International Union of North America, Leona, and Matt Stainton, President of SG Contractors. He is a giant in the construction industry here in Canada. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. So, Victoria, both ministers, Lecce and McNaughton, announcing serious high school education plans to better prepare young people for jobs of the future. What was your first reaction when you heard this? I think it was long overdue, but we are so proud of the strong focus and strong level of commitment by the provincial government to advancing the skilled trades portfolio in Ontario. We know that we have a labor shortage in the province, and alongside that, we have seen a strong level of infrastructure investments. The only way to advance and fulfill these infrastructure needs, including our homes, our transit, our road systems, and so much more that we rely on, we need to ensure that we have a productive and skilled and inclusive workforce at the forefront of its success. So getting the skilled trades back into our education system that was announced by Mr. Lecce and Mr. McNaughton is a strong leap forward. And Matt Stainton, 100,000 skilled trade jobs remain unfilled in Ontario. Why is that? It's something that we've spoken many times before on uh, amongst the industry and, uh, and even with yourself. It's been a challenge trying to 
get rid of the stigma associated with skilled trades and construction. Uh, it starts very early with schools, with uh, teachers, parents, guidance counselors, and this is going to be a great opportunity to have the kids get a, a chance to actually do it hands-on and see it and, and experience it and really open their eyes to the opportunities that sit in front of them. And, and so hopefully they'll be the ones that can go back to their teachers and guidance counselors and, and parents and say, this was really great. I really enjoyed it for some of them. You know, Matt, with still with you, for years, the skilled trade sector has maybe had a bit of a bum rap, kind of looked down upon. Why is that? And do you think that these changes to the education system will also change how people view skilled trades? I really hope that it will. I think that it will change the perception because I think that when when kids go back and, and Victoria and I ran an event for um, a girls hockey team and they came out to the Leuna training center and when we were arranging it there was a lot of grumbling about oh did we really want to do this on a Saturday and at the end of it they came out with smiles uh, grins from ear to ear they had such a good time but again it was something that they just didn't have exposure to they didn't hadn't seen it before they didn't get a chance they this was the first chance to do it hands-on see it touch it feel it and they had such a great time doing it so I think that this will certainly help uh, give more exposure and have the kids provide feedback but and and I, I, I hate to say this when we're talking to you but a lot of it has been the media <laughs> the media does not always portray the right image of construction and and lots of people have had a bad experience with a contractor that maybe came and worked in their house and took the toilet off and said i've got to run to the store and i'll be back in 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 an hour and they don't show up and they're without a toilet for two days those things obviously happen but i would say that that's the exception not the rule so we're really excited about what this is going to bring for the future here and victoria it appears that men make up more than 70% of workers in trades-related jobs. Why is that? Absolutely. So I think it's probably even higher now. You know, when we look at how many women are employed in the construction industry, it's still around 13%. And though we have women coming in, I think we really also need to be focusing on the retention piece, ensuring that we're eliminating barriers for women to succeed and reach their full potential in the industry and have that opportunity to advance because that will also help inspire the next generation of girls coming in, which is matched by this early exposure in our education system. I know when Minister Lecce and Minister Williams made the announcement, there was a strong focus on how implementing these changes in our school system will affect and impact girls and giving them that exposure and hands-on look at building a career in the trades. You know, we've come a long way um, as a construction industry and skilled trades, but we still have more work to do. And I do want to recognize the leadership of Minister McNaughton here, who continues to advance opportunities for our industry, whether it be, you know, through the Skilled Trades Development Fund, ensuring that we're empowering opportunities for an inclusive workforce, and recently announcing improvements to washroom and sanitization on site and PPE, which is something that I am a strong advocate, ensuring that PPE is not a one-size-fits model and that women can truly reach their full potential 
with dignity and respect on the job site. Let's, the three of us, unpack what was made in the announcements by Minister Lecce and Minister McNaughton uh, about 10 days ago. So we begin with this, uh, Lecce saying that all grade 9 students will have to earn a technological credit uh, in order to advance to whatever else they're going to do. A technological education curriculum, it covers a broad range of sectors, construction, manufacturing, transportation, computer technology, hospitality, and communication. Why is this important and why grade 9? So I think, again, it's to that piece of early exposure, breaking down the stigma that some of our youth may have heard in their households, um, you know, in our communities, in the school system, and really educating and showcasing that this is a viable, rewarding career path with financial stability, with retirement security through pension contributions, industry-leading health and wellness benefits. We like to say at Layuna, you know, this is not just a job. This is career. So instilling that at such a young age will help that creative input for our youth and show them that there are other paths forward besides the traditional route of university or post-secondary education. You know, we want kids to be able to do what they want to do. And if that is building with their hands, having that opportunity and the tools as young as grade nine, I think is a fantastic step forward and a fantastic commitment by the provincial government. And Matt, uh, Minister Lecce was quoted as saying, by requiring students to take at least one technical education credit in high school, we are creating new pathways to good jobs in STEM and the skilled trades. I think what's going to happen is that kids at a very early age, you know, if, if, if it's been put in their mind or that through, again, through parents, teachers, guidance counselors, society, that, you know, the path for everybody should be university or college. If they get that early exposure in grade nine or 10, and they get into trade and they and they start to do something with their hands and they really enjoy it. And, and it's not going to be for everybody, but there are lots of people that are missing that opportunity. It can then help them guide their curriculum through the remainder of their high school career. And that's why I think it's important to do it early. You know, I, I've said many times, there's a reason Lego is popular uh, for kids and boys and girls. It's because people like building, people like creating. You, you see kids in at the beach building sandcastles, both genders. People like building, people like creating. So this is just going to take them back to something that uh, you know probably goes back to when they were three or four or five years old and we're just refreshing that, that curiosity, that interest in those traits. And if nothing else, and it turns out that the trades isn't their path of, of uh, career choice in the long run, if nothing else, maybe they won't have to hire somebody to come hang something as simple as a picture in their home. Mm-hmm. And the other part of the announcement, and this was from Minister McNaughton, uh, grade 11 students now will have the option to transition to skilled trades apprenticeships. That's pretty important, and I don't know whether any of this was available to either of you when you were in high school. No, either one of us. I think that it's what's interesting, and, and if you look at it, there are 30 trades that do not require a, a high school diploma, but there are 106 that do. Hmm. So if somebody ends up dropping out of high school um, and not getting their credit, they've closed the door to 106 different skilled trades, and that's a real shame. So this, uh, you know, it, it is in the consultation period, and uh, it, it's not there yet, but it's, it's a great step forward. And I think what we really look forward to, both from the employer side and, and I'm sure Victoria from the UNIS side and labor side, is that there's going to be a great opportunity for consultation to 
express uh, you know the benefits and the concerns from both industry and labor side and the industry to get this moving forward in the right direction and keeping those stores open to those 106 and other opportunities that that exist out there if somebody unfortunately has to drop out because they choose that high school isn't the path for them. And Victoria, what advice have you for both the government as we go through the consultation process, but also for students who are now seeing this brand new VISTA opening up to them? What advice have you? Well, for students, I would say, you know, don't discourage um, your creativity. You know, believe in yourself and don't be scared to take that risk and, and that first step forward. Take that, that class, take that tech class and with an open mind because it will truly lead you to such a rewarding career. And rather than advice for the government, because I probably give them far too many unsolicited advice as it is, <laughs> but for parents, um, you know, parents do not discourage your children's passion to build a career in the industry because you're doing a discredit to them, to yourselves, and to our community. You know, these are institutions that will stand for generations to come. And these workers have such pride in knowing, I built that. I was part of this. And this will stand. And this is a piece of infrastructure that everyone will rely on. You know, these are getting to work, the car the the road that you drive on with your car to get to work or the you know public transportation system that was all built by skilled trades so there's such pride and there is such vast opportunity in this industry and i would hate to see the door closed just based on bias or because someone was scared to take that step forward so please take that step forward and we are here to support you every walk of the way And Matt, I have another quote. This one is from Monty McNaughton, the Minister of Labor and other aspects of his portfolio. So here it is, and I want your reaction to it. If you have a career in skilled trades, you have a career for life. It's it's a great statement. Um, I've heard him say that firsthand. He's he's toured uh, our sites with Leuna uh, a number of times, and we've had many, many discussions on this. What he's really saying is, we we break it down a little bit. Is there's tremendous financial stability in a in with a, a career in the trades. <clears throat> um, there's good pay. There are fantastic benefits, and there are pensions. But let me back up to the financial stability. People often associate skilled trades with labor unrest and things of that nature. But if you actually look at the labor unrest across you know all sectors in society. Construction is is one of the most stable uh, industries out there, and so and you know we had if if you have a strike it's a very very short period of time but we've seen we've gone many 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 years without them, and uh, it's it just gives such a great career for everybody and as Victoria says you know we we have a tremendous amount of immigration coming into into particularly the the GTA in Ontario. And there's an awful lot of infrastructure that has to be built to accommodate those people that are coming in and, 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 their, and our current population as well. So it, it really is a career for life. Well, I have found this discussion fascinating. I want to thank you both, Victoria Mancinelli, Chief Communications Officer Leona, and Matt Stainton, President SG Contractors. Thanks for your input, your observations, and I feel most importantly for your advice. Thank you so much for thank having you very us. Much, Anne. Coming up next, the case for wills and estate planning. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Back in December, a mass shooting took place in a Vaughn condo building, leaving five people dead. Now, months later, residents are feeling forgotten. Tina Cortez with a call for help. Dr. Jack Rosdelsky is a professor in disaster and emergency management at York University. And he's also a resident of the Vaughn condo building where the violence took place. He joins us now. Can you tell us a bit about your background in disaster and emergency management and how it informs your experience as a resident of the Vaughn Condo building where the mass shooting took place? Oh, uh, that's a very uh, interesting question because I find myself in the position of both a participant and an observer of the uh, recent disaster of the uh, mass shooting in the Vaughn condominium building because my day job is a professor of disaster and emergency management at York University where I actually teach and study in areas of terrorism, mass shootings, and human-induced disasters. So in addition to having some knowledge of the management strategies that are applied in these types of crises, and the mass shooting, I was actually in the middle of the crisis. And that's that's a very unique perspective, right? Because when you're teaching about this information, about this content, it's different from when you're going through it. So how did the shooting impact you and perhaps maybe some of the other residents of the condo building? Well, the shooting uh, happened on the evening of Sunday, December 18th. And and, and speaking uh, for myself, I was in the building during the time the shooting was occurring. I um, was alerted to the shooting by a fire alarm going off. When the fire alarm was going off, I left the building as one does during the fire alarm. Then I noticed it was not only the type of response we see with uh, fire trucks and ambulances as if it was a fire uh, alarm type situation, but there were many York Regional Police uh, showing up with weapons drawn and tactical SWAT teams and others rushing into the building with uh, long guns. And at that time, uh, I became aware that this is a different type of circumstance, that a mass shooting was taking place in the building and uh, the way it was affected, um, later hours uh, after the shooting, we were allowed back into the building, and the my living space became a crime scene. And coming back in through the building, I'll just put it this way, uh, one sees some things that one cannot unsee as a result of exposure to this extreme uh, violence. It takes its toll in terms of exposure to trauma. And how are you doing today, all of these months later? Uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm seeking uh, a professional help through uh, counseling to uh, work out what I need to um, 
uh, work out in terms of developing my own set of uh, coping skills to uh, deal with my uh, trauma exposure because when we uh, look at what happens after a, a mass shooting, and uh, unfortunately um, in North America and the United States, there is a lot more experience in society with mass shootings. And after a mass shooting, feelings of fear, anger, anxiety, uh, difficult pain, uh, difficulties paying attention, depression, disturbed sleep, and other symptoms um, occur when one is exposed to situations of extreme violence, which are out of one's ordinary day-to-day uh, -day living. So there becomes a need for providing trauma-informed care in the aftermath of a mass shooting through community coping and mental health assistance. As you said, this type of violence you know, it happens more often south of the border. But what do you think about the response here at home to this shooting? Has it been sufficient? Uh, well, when we talk about the aftermath of a mass shooting, the initial response was handled by law enforcement and police. Very efficiently and very bravely, they did what needed to be done to bring the immediate situation to a closure with the mass uh, shooter. Uh, unfortunately, five residents, five neighbors of mine were killed in the building during the smash shooting. Uh, another resident was shot and injured and still coping with the recovery, which is uh, the, um, the, the worst part of this whole thing. We have to acknowledge the victims of those who were injured. But then there's a long aftermath of hundreds of people in the building who all had our own uh, versions of various exposure to the mass shooting uh, incident. And there was a need that existed for mental health professionals to help us transition from the response into the recovery. Mm -hmm. And the situation in the building, we did not begin to that type of support until 11 days after the shooting, which was, uh, frankly, too late. And have you shared these thoughts with those officials, with government officials, in terms of the delayed response? Uh, yes, I've been uh, doing that in a variety of uh, forms. And what, um, and what I'm seeing happening uh, right now this was the largest mass shooting in York region history. And in fact, one of the largest mass shootings in Ontario or Canada for that matter. So this was a significant disaster. So authorities don't have practice every day in dealing with these types of disasters. So they're somewhat unique, mm -hmm. but at the same time, there's a transition that takes place from response to recovery. And in places like York region, when victim services, York Region Victim Services was able to show up and provide help to us in the building to cope on a community level, the services they provided to us were excellent. And they really helped out a lot in helping us get, uh, begin to cope with what we just faced in the shooting. But the point was that even though the resources and expertise exist in York Region to help out with these types of events, 
the capacity did not exist for a rapid response to assist victims and survivors of the shooting, as opposed to um, other mass shootings I've been observing and looking at in the United States, where within hours of the shooting incident, you have the capabilities of for the disaster recovery with uh, trauma-informed community workers going up to provide immediate, immediate psychological first aid. That eventually is happening with us in the building, but it happened much later than it should have happened because of a lack of a capacity to respond to mass shootings in Vaughan, in Vaughan and in the York region in terms of the uh, aftermath of what people who are exposed to this violence are dealing with. So what needs to be done going forward? What lessons can we learn from the shooting here in Vaughan that could inform emergency preparedness and response efforts in the future? Um, something that we can think about to in- inform something that I, I guess if we at best could attempt to learn from this tragic mass shooting in Vaughan, one of the things that we can learn is um, after, immediately after the mass shooting incident is brought to an end with the police response, there is a recovery process that begins for the victims. And I mean victims who were directly exposed to the violence and others who were indirectly exposed to violence but still have effects of uh, trauma, which are characterized by um, basic, um, which, which are characterized through uh, people seeing and people seeing, people hearing, people being around the side of uh, violence. So I think realizing that the survivors of mass shootings, which also need to have recovery services provided to them, both in the short term and long term, and kind of beginning to think about how, as a region, in the York region, we could do better with the transition from disaster response to disaster recovery in terms of providing mental health, coping, and psychological first aid services to survivors of mass shootings. Dr. Rodelsky, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your story with us. Please take care of yourself. Uh, Thank you. And the one last thing I'd like to say Mm -hmm. concerning the urgency It's not going to be a question of if, but a question of when the next mass shooting occurs in the York region. So I think in terms of looking at the whole scope of the recovery cycle for mass shooting, that's what we need to do better about. And unfortunately, this incident happened in Vaughan. We have an opportunity to learn from it, and we can figure out how to better provide recovery coping services residents of York region for the next time this happens. Thank you for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you. Next, how a will could avoid the family fight and save your assets. Jim Lang with the legal ease. Well, Angus Reid recently had a fascinating poll that shocked me and a lot of us here at the radio station that said that 50% of Canadians don't have a last will and testament. And I I couldn't believe it myself, but to talk more about it, 
Thrilled to be joined by veteran Wills and Estates lawyer Les Kotzer right here in the feed. Les, how are you? Fine, thank you, Jim. I, I mean, let's get to the start of it. What are the legal implications of dying in Canada if you don't have a will? Well, if you don't have a will in Ontario, basically the government writes it for you. Uh, first of all, you, you have no executor in place when you die, and it's very important. The executor looks after your estate when you die. Secondly, uh, if you're, the law sets out who inherits your assets, uh, and the spouse would get, your spouse would get, I think, the first $350,000. If you have two kids, the, uh, if you have one kid, the spouse would just split the remainder with the one, uh, 50-50 to one child. And if you have two kids, they get two-thirds, and the spouse gets one-third of the remainder. So it can create some real nightmares, family fighting between parent, the surviving spouse and, her, and his or her children. Uh, also, uh, Without a will, the law gives your children their inheritance at the age of 18. We all know how we are, how we used to be at 18. Imagine coming into somebody's million-dollar, two-million-dollar estate at 18. I don't know if you'd be going to school or just uh, having a good life for the next two years and then blowing it. So without a will, it can create a real nightmare for your family. Uh, and uh, my whole practice is about trying to save families from fighting uh, and not having a will or having a very bad will. For example, um, you know, some people do it themselves. Um, if you don't do it right, you can really create a nightmare for your family. Well, I was thinking of a lesson in your depth of knowledge and your experience. You must run into this a lot. Well, so what are the most common mistakes people make when they try to create their will? Well, um, first of all, um, I've always, people said to me, can you do a will on your own? And I said, absolutely. You can also do a root canal on your own, but I've never <laughs> tried one, unfortunately. So uh, it's something, you know, I have books uh, all over my office with, uh, with relating to wills. And it it's took me, I'm, I've been practicing over 30 years, and I can tell you, you're learning every day. So for somebody to wing it, I don't recommend it. Uh, when you make your own will, many times, um, people don't take into consideration assets that they have joint with somebody. So if you and I, Jim, own a home in joint names, I can't leave it in my will to somebody else. If, we have, if we're joint tenants on our house, I can't leave it to somebody else. And in many of the homemade wills, they're leaving things like, for example, that can't be left to somebody else, Some, you know, somebody that you're joint with. You can't, as I say, you can't leave it to another person. Uh, there's, there's real issues, and there's issues when it comes to second marriages as well. Uh, a lot of kids uh, lose out their entire inheritance that dad would have left them because dad didn't do proper planning, and the second spouse got everything, and then, then that second spouse died and left everything to her or his children. And that's why I say when you're doing wills in a second marriage, uh, you know, there are four rings to that type of will. The engagement ring, the wedding ring, bickering, and suffering. Uh, and you have to be very careful because you need proper advice. If you want to protect your kids from your first marriage, you need proper advice to make sure that those kids actually wind up with something from your hard work of all these years and not your second spouse who may have, you know, you may have had assets in joint names. So, for example, if you're in a second marriage and you have assets in joint name with your second spouse and you think you can leave everything in your will to your kids, well, your wife or husband's getting everything that's joint with them. The kids aren't getting it in your will. Huh. So these are issues that happen. And one of the things that I do in my practice, Jim, is I do free reviews of wills. So if people have homemade wills or they, or they don't, even if they don't know where to start to make a will, I do free consultations. And uh, I also do free reviews of people's existing wills. So they can, they can you know, contact me at my law firm, Fish and Associates. We're in Thornhill. Uh, and uh, I set up a time and I'll be happy to look at their documents for them. Speaking with veteran wills and estates lawyer Les Concer, and uh, my wife and I had a a family friend who passed away about a year, year and a half ago and got us thinking, of, should we update her will? And when we started updating it last, we realized it was out of date. How how often should a couple update their will to make sure it is up to date? 
Well, whenever you have changing life situations, so for example, you know, I had somebody who had who called me. They had a will from 1974, and should I have date my will? I said, <laughs> My God, I was I, I, I don't know how old was I? Twenty odd years old. Things have changed. You know, you get married, you have kids, you have grandkids. Uh, you, you know, a lot of people have wills when they make their own wills. They'll say, for example, I leave my house on on John Street to my son. They no longer live on John Street. You better change that will, okay? Uh, I leave my you know 2012 car to my son. Well, guess what? He's not getting your 2023 car if it says 2012 car in the will. So there are issues that have to be considered. And it's really about estate planning to make sure you... And also, people don't plan for avoiding probate, for minimizing or, you know, you can avoid probate tax. That's a tax when you die by having things, for example, in joint tenancy, by having a name beneficiary in RSP, by having a name beneficiary on your life insurance. All of this stuff interacts with wills, uh, and you have to do it properly, and that's why, you know, not every lawyer does, does a lot of wills. I mean, there are some lawyers that never even do wills. Uh, hmm. Criminal lawyers generally don't do them. A lot of people in real estate stick to real estate, so you should see somebody that does a lot of wills. Uh, that's important. Unless I've heard this from a few people, and and I've seen this done, and I'm just curious how it happens. How do you do it if you want to donate part of your estate to charity when you pass? Well, you you would leave a sum of money or a percentage of your estate to charity. Most people leave a sum of money. So, for example, uh, before your wife gets your estate, you would say, uh, I leave $10,000 to the X charity foundation or whatever. So you can certainly do that. Uh, also, the, one of the biggest areas of fighting is personal items. Hmm. Uh, how, do you, how do you divide a table in the hall or a painting on the wall? So it's important for people to talk to their families. One of the things that I, I, I've written four books on this topic, Jim, and my latest is called The Wills Lawyers. They're stories of money, inheritance, greed, family, and betrayal. And I can tell you, I see it all. Uh, and so much of it, so much of the fighting that I see in my wills practice is created by the parents themselves. I had a, a, a man come into my office who was fighting with his siblings. And he said, I said to him, what do you think caused all this? He said, well, my family was, we weren't the Partridge family from the television show. We were the Ostrich family because my parents stuck their heads in the sand and never talked to us about anything. We didn't know where their assets are. We didn't know anything. They did their own homemade will. They wouldn't spend money to do a will. And it's a mess. We are fighting each other. So often parents plant the seeds for the destruction of their own family. And they don't do it purposely, but because they put their heads in the sand and don't think about this topic and keep putting it off and putting it off, or updating documents that are out of date, extremely important to update your wills, and power of attorney. Hmm. People don't realize that the will is only good when you die. The will has no effect while you're alive. So if you become incompetent in a car accident, Alzheimer's, you could be 18 and hit your head on the hockey boards and go be incompetent. The government of Ontario could literally step in and freeze your assets. And people don't realize this. So it's important to make what's called a power of attorney to protect you while you are alive for your finances and also to protect your health so you do a medical one so somebody you trust can make medical decisions for you if you can't make them for yourself. So you really need three documents, the will, and you need two power of attorneys for one you're alive, uh, one for health and one for property. It's extremely important. Last in closing, how did we get to the point in Canada where half the people in the country don't have a will? Uh, that's a very good point, but Jim, but the other point is how many people who have a will have good wills? That's yeah. another scary thing. Okay? Yeah. They, think, they think they protected their family, but in fact, they've created a roadmap for destruction, even by having a will that, for example... You know, you name one child as executor, and the other two kids are now old enough to be executors, but mother only forgot to change role, now has one. 
generally the problem is a lot of those kids are going to be fighting with each other because one can become a dictator uh, selling the family cottage without the others you know saying yes because once you're an executor you have the power to do that where now you may want to revise your will to have all of your children be executors if if that's the, if you want that to happen and you can have a closet majority rules if you have three kids for example so it's the, there's little dynamics within a will that can destroy the family and it's not just money it's who you've appointed it's how you deal with your personal items those kind of issues uh, is one child looking after the money for your other children uh, that can be a problem what age if you're a young first of all Jim if you're a young parent of parents of young children, I don't know how you sleep at night without making a will. Because in that will, you need a guardian for your children to raise your oh, kids. Right. If you don't have, if you don't have a guardian, you could have literally your parents fighting with your wife's parents over who's going to have custody of this child or children. It's a nightmare. So I don't know how they sleep at night. And if you don't have a will, as I said, that kid gets everything at 18. No matter, no matter how irresponsible a child is, the law says you no will. Everything at 18 to that child when the child inherits. Um, we normally would set up a trust in the will, for example, at 25 or 30. And one last thing I'll mention. Sure. And everybody out there is, should listen to this. There's a, most people, if I were to ask your audience, how many of you would want your son-in-law or daughter-in-law, or if you're married, you've got to talk to your parents about this, or you're a couple, how many of you would want your son-in-law or daughter-in-law to benefit from what you've left your child in case your child gets divorced? In other words, would you want your son-in-law or daughter-in-law to benefit from all of your years of hard work? And I would say most of your audience say, absolutely not. And I would even say the young listeners of your young audience would say, no, if I get divorced, I want my parents to give me the inheritance. I don't want my husband to divorce me and take part of what I've made from that inheritance. Well, guess what? They could, and you need to put a clause in the will called the family law clause, which makes sure, as a parent, that if whatever money you leave your children, any money made from that money, in other words, your child inherits a million bucks and invests it in five years, it's two million or whatever, any money made from that inheritance, every will that I do, I put a clause in that makes sure your son-in-law or daughter-in-law gets nothing if they divorce or separate from your child. That's fascinating. Les, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I've learned. I'm sure the audience have learned from this discussion. If people want to get a hold of you to do what you've suggested sure. and update their will, how can they? Okay, so they can call me. I'll give you a direct number. First of all, if you go to YouTube and punch in my name, Les Kotzer, you can watch some videos which will help you. L-E-S-K-O-T-Z-E-R. That's L-E-S. My first name is Les, and it's K-O-T-Z-E-R. They can call me. I'm at Young and north of, uh, just north of Center Street in, uh, in a house in Thornhill. Uh, my office is Fish and Associates, and my number is 905, my direct number, 905-881-1500, 905-881-1500, extension 19. I'm happy to talk to you, uh, and if you have any questions, give me a call. Les, absolutely a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Jim. We'll talk to you soon. Coming up, taking a spin around the roller rink at the mall. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. Next on the feed, honoring the frontline heroes of COVID 19, here's Glenn Perkins. The Honoring Our Heroes, a COVID-19 commemoration concert and fair, is being held at the Markham Fairgrounds. It's a celebration with entertainment, food, and much more. Vijay Yakula with Frontline Community Center is one of the organizers. She joins us now. Vijay, why is it important to remember these heroes three years after the pandemic? 
That's a good question. You know, we are slowly coming out of pandemic once we slowly getting to normal life. And we need to appreciate and celebrate this. We need to celebrate those who have done outstanding services to our community. And also, the government of Canada, they declared March 11th as a national day of observance of COVID-19. So they're supposed to be on the March 11th. Uh, we need to celebrate uh, or recognize as a COVID-19 um, commemoration date. But we are celebrating on March 25th and 26th of this month. When we're talking about these workers, is it just healthcare or other sectors included? I'm thinking of the staff at my local grocery store that I had to deal with the long yes. lineup. Actually, this is just not frontline workers or healthcare workers. We would like to acknowledge and appreciate the contribution made by anyone. Like the pandemic heroes are, they can be anyone, uh, either a community volunteer, community ambassador, community leader, or someone working for a nonprofit organization or healthcare workers, retail workers, police, firefighters, or school, college, universities, teachers, professors, or anyone who have done an outstanding contribution to community in capacity to the COVID-19 pandemic. We also wanted to pay tribute to those who have lost their lives while serving the community during the pandemic as well. Since, uh, you know, they have lost their lives, we would like to invite their family members or loved ones to participate on behalf of them uh, to get the recognized and the tribute on the stage. Your organization has come up with a way to pay tribute to these people. Tell me what's planned. This is a two-day event. It's happening on both March 25th and 26th. This is a free public event and free parking as well. And it's happening at the Markham Fairground, Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. This event has uh, three objectives. One is to honor and celebrate those who have done outstanding work in response to COVID. The other part is to support those uh, local businesses. There's so many businesses have lost their business during the pandemic, and this event is going to support small local businesses by having a booth and promote their businesses. So we have almost over 25 booths have booked so far to promote their businesses as well. And some of them are non-profit organizations as well. They are going to outreach about their program and services to the community. And the third part is to give us space or stage for artists. Now, during the pandemic, uh, many of them got affected, uh, mostly affected as the entertainment industry, as you know, we all know. So this uh, stage is giving opportunity for budding artists to showcase their talents on stage. Except award ceremony time, we are giving over 300 artists are performing uh, on stage, different uh, performances, dance, music fusion, drums, fashion shows, drama, you name it. We are giving them an opportunity to showcase their talents as well as we are also appreciating by giving them honorarium as well. The event sounds like it's going to be wonderful and for the whole family. Where can listeners get more information? This information can be gathered from our event page, Frontline Community Centers, COVID-19 Commemoration Concert and Fair, or they can also visit our Frontline Community Centers website, www.sccanada. That's called F for Frank, C for Charlie, C for Charlie, Canada.org. 
under the event page, you can get all the information. We are also looking for nomination from uh, heroes, the frontline heroes as well. And they can also call us our phone number for more information at 416-840-4425. And in addition to that, I also wanted to share another information that we have arranged buses going from Frontline Community Center, which is from Scarborough, to this event, Markham Fairground. Every two hours, the bus is arranged for them to pick up and drop off them as well. Vijaya Kula from the Frontline Community Center, thank you for joining us on the feed today. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. The roller skating craze is back, but this time inside the local mall. Shaliza back is now with the move to stroll instead of scroll. We're turning now to a lighter story and a lot of fun things to do here in the region. And you can add roller skating to your list. So in case you've been walking through the promenade shopping center and you notice something a little different, something you may not have noticed before, I'm going to tell you what that is. It is Suso Skate Company, and it is in the place of where H&M used to be at the promenade shopping center. And I'm joined now by Henry O'Brien, one of the co-founders of Suso Skate. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me. So I feel like roller skating is so classic. It's so nostalgic. What inspired the idea to open this up in the first place? Yeah, good question. Definitely, definitely nostalgic. So my girlfriend and I, um, we met uh, the early days of COVID. Um, Everything was locked down. There was very little to do. It was, I think it was March 2021. We were looking for something to do in an outdoor capacity, Googling online, trying to find new things that we hadn't done before. We figured you could rent bicycles by the hour you could rent stand-up paddle boards by the hour but why couldn't you rent roller skates by the hour and so that was the initial seed of the idea and then the more kind of research we did the more we then realized that you couldn't really rent roller skates in an outdoor environment so we pursued that that was our first season we were primarily only outdoors really and then fast forward to today and we have our first indoor location, a promenade shopping center and soon to be many more. We mentioned off the top that this is a feeling of nostalgia, but your clientele actually does bring a lot of teens and young adults to the roller skating rink. So is this a sign of resurgence in roller skating maybe? I think so. I mean, we're we're all about kind of community engagement, getting people off their phones and active in, in some capacity. In roller skating, is this really kind of the medium or the, the, the way in which we've chosen? But it's all about kind of getting your friends together, getting your group together, getting your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your partner together, and, and just kind of letting loose for an hour and um, having some fun. So it doesn't matter if you haven't skated in a while or you've never skated. Um, we've got all the protective gear. Um, I would say the majority of our skaters are net new skaters. Uh, they're there for the first time. They're there for a date night, maybe before going for dinner or a drink. And it's just a, a fun activity to do kind of for, for really all ages. That really is. And if someone has never roller skated before, maybe it's their first time, what do you provide to make it an enjoyable experience for them? Yeah, great question. So we have everything booked online in advance. Uh, the reason for that is that we can manage capacity. Uh, we don't want it to be over capacity and feel like it's a, an unsafe environment. So we suggest and recommend that people book in advance online. That way they can pick their skate size, their date uh, and their, their time. Show up 10, 15 minutes before their skate allocation time. All Skate rentals are um, come inclusive of wrist guards. And then if you wish to add on any additional protective gear, so knee pads, elbow pads, or helmets, uh, you can do that in the booking process online for an additional $3 each uh, or there's a bundle. As I said, the majority of, of skaters are net new. 
And yeah, it's just a good time. You can skate for minimum one hour up to two or three hours. Most people would probably skate for an hour or two. We're located right next to the food court too. So if you want to go grab a frozen yogurt, an ice cream, a coffee and Tim's, really accessible. I love that. That sounds like so much fun. That just has me feeling all the feels. And I'm still thinking about that rooftop one right now. Although right now, if you do want to check that out, you can check it out at Promenade in Thornhill, which is right here in the region. And if people want to find more information, where can they go? Yeah, they can check out our Instagram. Handle is Suso Skateco, S-U-S-O-S-K-A-T-E-C-O for company. Our website is the same same domain, SusoSkateco.com. In case any of your listeners are wondering where the name comes from, Suso is short for summer solstice. Uh, we're all about kind of creating those those summer vibes like you mentioned. Hard to imagine on days like today when it's, we're covered in snow, but we're hoping in a couple more months it'll be sunny, warm, and we'll be welcoming lots of skaters on the rooftop at CF Shop the Don That is so much fun. And as you mentioned, for the time being, you can check them out as a pop-up in Promenade Mall in Thornhill. Henry O'Brien, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.